Right, so this is what we've been looking at in Colossians 3, that, that you cannot separate the love of God from our love from one another, our love for one another, I should say. All right, because this is what Paul has been saying over and over again, and, and I keep harping on, is God the Father has adopted us as sons and put us together, and therefore, as those made in the image of Jesus the Son, we're, we're, we're family. God's grace gets the attention of all kinds of different people, often the kinds of people we would not choose ourselves <laughs> to spend time with. And he says, now that you know Jesus, live together, love one another. As it says in verse, I believe, 11 or 12, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in law and in all. And so, right, here we are, a bunch of different people thrown together by grace. And, and when we actually love one another, when we actually start living out these commands and do so in surprising ways, that, that's going to become an apologetic, a, a testimony to our neighbors that, that God loves us the same way that he loves his son, Jesus. And so that's the context as we come to this for the commands for slaves to obey their masters and masters to rule fairly and justly without partiality. And for us Americans, it's impossible to read this without, without doing history and without lamenting our history and without grieving over our own, over the church's role in our history. And so... That the elephant in the passage is how in the world can Paul tell slaves to obey their masters and to obey them in everything? Why didn't he just say, well, if Jesus' first sermon was, I come with good news to set the captives free. Why did Paul not just say, well, masters, set your slaves free? And so first point, which is helpful and uh, is, is that ancient slavery, as we jump into this, it, it was different than our practices of American slavery. I mean, it was not always just. I'm not going to argue for that at all. Um, but it was different, right? And, and I'm saying this with images in my head of being on the island of Zanzibar in Tanzania and seeing the tight, inhumane, barbaric, little cave where they put a hundred people just crammed in elbow to elbow, where they treated them like cattle. Right? Ancient slavery was different than the transatlantic slave trade that we have in our minds when we read this text. Right? But we got to ask that and talk about it because this is a huge objection. If you, when you go off to community college, uh, when you go off to any kind of religion 101 course, um, one of the reasons they're being told the Bible says some good things, but it really blew it when it came to slavery. And even more extreme objections would say, Paul saying, slaves obey their masters, that's making God and Jesus the Bible. Doesn't that paint God like some kind of moral monster? You know, not caring about the suffering of slaves. And so that's why I want you to see that ancient slavery was different than the race-based, lifelong brutality of the American slave owners. I mean, slavery has always been 
what we did as time went on was make it specific to one particular people group. Which is not good. It's evil. Right? In the ancient world, there were two reasons general. Oh, there's a handful. But the, the main reason you were a slave was because you were a prisoner of war. And, and somebody took you from your home, dragged you back home, and now you serve in their household. Or you were a prisoner of poverty. Right? Maybe you had a bad harvest. And the debt the tax collector came around and you had no other option but to go work and pay off your debt so that you may, in the end, earn your freedom. Right? That wasn't race-based, although there was cruelty involved. It was not necessarily lifelong bondage. Um, you could actually buy your way out of slavery. And there are some who were slaves that became Roman citizens. So they, there was upward mobility. And many slaves were often highly educated. Right? So this is, this is already sounding different from what, what went on here in the States. So it's just, it's just a, a, a helpful reminder that context matters <laughs> when you read these things. Context matters. You've got to know what Paul is speaking into because that's when these, when these letters were written, especially Colossians, it's well aware that the world is not how it ought to be. And it says, okay, how does the gospel go in there and inform how you live now in an imperfect system? In an imperfect world. Right? And ancient slavery did have a dark side. I'm, they're not getting off the hook. I mean, often, it's ugly. I've read a lot of history, so... Just, just warning you. I mean, slaves were often abandoned infants, and the, the abandoned infants were often little girls. Um, even darker, or just as dark, slaves were seen as property. They were not humanized, often. Right? I mean, the language you would use, right? If I were to put myself in the shoes of a wealthy Greco-Roman, I need, a, I need, I need some slaves in my household. You say, I'm going to go to the market today and pick up some bodies. I need two more bodies. Because that's all they are. They're just bodies. Stuff. Stuff that happened to move around and talk back. And yet, here we are in the Colossian church, which now has both slaves and masters following Jesus together. And that's the context, is knowing that has happened, how do you live together? How does the gospel change that relationship? All right, I mean, this, this is happening in Philemon's house, who is most likely, hit. Philemon is a wealthy landowner, house owner. He is hosting the church, or at least one of the churches in Colossians. And in that church is a guy named Onesimus, who's his servant. And that's what the whole book of Philemon's about, but they're both mentioned in here. How do those guys get along, knowing there's a very big gap between their, their freedom and ability? Right. I mean, it was quite possible that you would go to church in the ancient world. You'd have the door. You'd be welcomed in by a servant. They would wipe your feet. They'd seat you at a table. They maybe even feed you a meal. Right. So, so how do you live with that? And so here's the first thing that's really encouraging and, and starts to, I think, put the slave, puts the slave trade to death. It's 
Paul addresses slaves first. He does so before masters. He's doing something that no one else does. He says, you are essential. You're a, you are an important, integral part of God's kingdom. As a lowly servant, saying Jesus sees you, it's the slaves, you have a master in heaven, in Christ Jesus. You too have to put your minds on things who are above. And that master, no matter what the guy you work for is like, is kind and gracious and just and does not play favorites. And one day he will pay back, pay back the masters for the wrong that they have done. So trust and wait for that to happen. He doesn't play favorites. That's encouraging. And in fact, you notice there's a lot more written to the slaves. I mean, a lot of commentators think that the sheer volume and the number of words, because there's more words spoken to slaves, it probably means there's more slaves following Jesus than there are masters. You know, the, the gospel gripped the attention and the hearts of the poor and helpless. So Paul, he speaks to servants first. He's, he's starting to use the gospel to change things, even though he doesn't just say, set them free. Right? He's teaching them how to see each other, which changes everything. Right? I mean, look at, look at the servant's identity. It says, here's the reason you ought to obey and work hard, because you know that you will get your inheritance one day in the future. And the ones who get the inheritance are not slaves, but sons. And the only ones who are sons in God's kingdom are the ones who are in Christ, who are treated by God as Jesus is treated, as a beloved son. And so, right away, you can see how the gospel would grip the attention of these people who culturally have no no wealth, no significance. I mean, they're treated like stuff, and now they're being told that you, servant, are made in the image and are being remade in the image of your creator, Jesus. The creator of your king. The image of your king. So Paul's setting up slavery to die. Right? Because servants and masters now serve Jesus together. Do you see that? They're both chosen holy and beloved by faith. Slaves are lifted up. Masters are, are humbled, but they come together then as servants of the Lord Christ together in different roles where God has, in that particular place where God had called them. Right. So, if they are equals in Christ, why, how did we get the, the mess we have in America? Right? I mean, if, you, if you're equals in Christ, and we're going to talk about at the end of this sermon how you're supposed to treat each other like family, how do we get this mess here in our country? And we have to do some history. Right? And I, that's, that's part of what I've been reading just in general. It's a book called Dominion by Tom Holland, who's a non-Christian historian. And he said, you know, you know why we had this race-based practice of slavery? So when European, you could also put in there Christianized, White men, Europeans, wanted to justify their race-based slavery and cruelty. They didn't turn to the Bible. They chose to read Aristotle from the ancient world. 
Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, who said, some men are slaves by nature because they don't think the way I think. They aren't as smart as me. Therefore, they must be subhuman. It's just their portion to be slaves. And so once that happened, as the Europeans used their prejudice and their partiality and their race, racism, justified by something outside the Bible, then they came back and found this passage and said, now that you are a slave, you must obey your masters because that's what Jesus said. And it doesn't say set you free, it says obey. Right? And so when you come to our country in the, in the beginning with all this, the, the ugliness, right? you had white American Christians going to church experiencing the love of heaven on earth as they went out then and went home the rest of the week creating horror and hell for their equal image-bearing brothers. It's awful. And what happened was the first American slaveholders, they knew what they were doing. They did not want their slaves, their servants, to hear about the Bible because they were afraid that the slaves would understand that Christianity made their masters equal before God. They would lose their power and they would hear the command to serve. And so as you let that sink in, this, this is telling you through history, through, through some exegesis here, what the scriptures say, the gospel has the power to put the slave trade to death out of our, our love for fellow human beings and fellow Christians in particular in the church. And our sin as the American church, and if you've never studied this, it's just been to willfully ignore the whole message of the Bible. And the whole story of the Bible is about how God sets oppressed people free. <laughs> and as a I've got more sad history, but it's, it, it just helps so that when you're in a conversation with, with someone, you, you have a context of what, what's going on here. Right? We need, and we need to talk about it in church, because otherwise you're, you're going to hear this elsewhere from a completely different perspective. But as Christians, we're called to uncover our sin and to be on it. To be ashamed of it, but to be honest about it, right? Blessed are those who are, whose sin is forgiven. And when you stay silent, that's when the body starts to fall apart. I think you can apply that here. I mean, 300 AD, there were already called, 380 AD, a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus, Orthodox theologian, Constantinople, so modern-day Turkey, he was already saying that we should end the slave trade. Fast forward a thousand years later, here in America, one of the theologians whom I love, in the Northeast, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who wrote many beautiful things about Jesus. And he would say things that nothing changes a person like the sight of the beauty of Christ. When you see God's moral and spiritual glory and beauty that makes you want to follow Jesus because of the way he deals with the weak and sinners. And yet, even Jonathan Edwards, right, he saw the moral beauty of God and did not see the ugliness of owning 
six slaves. Civil War, Presbyterian Church in America, in the South, said the slave system was kindly and benevolent and had provided a real effective discipline who could not be elevated in any other way. This is coming from Christians. After the Civil War, and, and, and we had Juneteenth, right, which people have been talking about the last couple days, that, that day when slaves were told of their freedom in Texas, what happened afterwards was just a whole system set up to keep, to, to keep the races separate. Right? Jim Crow South, KKK. Um, anyway, I, one of our pastors that came out of 10th Presbyterian Church t- said this is what his dad told him all the time growing up as someone who lived in South Carolina in the 20s and 30s in the Jim Crow South that it was better for African Americans to go fight in two world wars than to live in America in the Jim Crow South. And he was in a place surrounded by churches. And so we right now as a denomination are dealing with this. Um, We have several racial reconciliation um, resolutions that you can read about and I'd be happy to talk to you about But even during the civil rights movement, one of our flagship churches in Jackson, Mississippi, their elders have confessed publicly that they they participated in in keeping out their African-American brothers and sisters from the church or forced them to sit in the balcony. It's a failure of the second commandment to love my neighbor as myself. So what about us? Right. We just did a flyover of like 2,000 years of history. It was not nuanced. It's kind of like a big hammer. Um, but that's, that we, we only have a short amount of time. Here's, here's what's really helpful. Recognize no matter who you are, when you come to the scriptures and when you look at human beings in general, who God uses is always, they're always flawed. Slaves and masters, sinners alike. I mean, right here in our text, the servants are told the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And partiality, we're all prone to partiality. Partiality is when I play favorites. When, right, it's not wrong to have friends. You've got to make a distinction between friendship and partiality. Partiality is when I use a particular value to elevate myself above someone else. To have favorites. And partiality, the damage partiality has done is all the way through the scriptures. Go all the way back to Abraham. Right? Abraham, who treated his servant like an object to be used and disposed of, Hagar. Right? They got her pregnant. She had a child. There was a disagreement in the household. Abraham sent her away into the desert. Generally, that was a death sentence. Not pretty. He's the father of our faith. Father Abraham. His son Isaac loved one son more than the other. And that, the damage that did, that blew up a household. Jacob imitated both the sins of his father and grandfather. Mistreating female servants, 
having favorite sons, and that caused all kinds of damage in his household. And so what I think this is calling us to do as we look at the, the Bible story as a whole and this idea of partiality is have the courage because of the grace of Christ to start confessing our own partialities when you see them or when they're pointed out. Because I have them. You have them. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's economics, rich and poor. Maybe it's, well, I guess if we were in the South, we'd talk about college football. <laughs> you know, sports teams, right? I still love Norm, even though he roots for the Patriots. <laughs> right, we all have partiality, but when, when you see the beauty of Jesus who shows no partiality and did not do so for you, that, that as he died for his enemies, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? And he did so as our master coming down to serve us as a slave. The same word used here. When you realize he's going to love you the same, it gives you the freedom to step out of the darkness into the light and confess to say, God, I have partiality in my heart. Help me heal it. Help me see the image of Christ in those you have placed me next to and in life with, specifically in the church and outside the church. It's, it's, it's praying, God, how, show me the gospel. Show me how Jesus loved me so I can use my authority to not play favorites. And we're going to get it wrong. We're going to make mistakes, but as we, you start from that position of humility that opens an opportunity to, to be heard, to speak gently, to speak truth, to start to change. Right? Yeah, I got way, way too much information. I'm going to, I'd love to talk about Revelation 18. I'm going to skip that. But if you want to read Revelation 18 on your own, I would encourage you to do so because this is where the slave trade is specifically condemned. I mean, it's in Exodus, it's in Leviticus. Um, you get to Revelation 18 and there is a long list of all the great wealth of Rome. 30 things, in fact. It's the longest list we have of cargo in the ancient world, anywhere. And when you get to the end of the list, do you know what, what the last two things are? Right? And, and in the background, you've got to hear this, right? Babylon's going down. The slave, the, all the economy, the wealth, that's getting tossed. It's, it's, going, it's all coming down because God is judging. Right? And in the background are kings and, and wealthy weeping because they're losing their stuff. And at the end of this list, and I think John is doing this on purpose, it says, it goes from gold, silver, all the way down to, to bodies, that is, human souls. Specifically, getting your attention to go all the way back to Genesis 1, when God made human beings in the image of God. It's saying that it may look beautiful on the outside, but if it's built on bodies... There's something wrong. There's something evil. There's something Babylonian about it. There's something dragonish. I mean, there's something, it's wicked. Right? It's a lot more nuanced than that, but read it. Come, shoot me an email. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. But the last point, <coughs> last point, 
in conclusion here, it's to love each other as family. And I think that's what this whole section of Colossians is about because it's addressed to a household. It's addressed to the church. If we want to be a prophetic witness among our neighbors, it's going to start with how we relate to one another. Um, and where this gets really practical is the little letter of Philemon that I hope you got a chance to read before you came today. If not, add that to your homework assignment. Um, it's only like 20 verses long. There's, not even, there's, there's only one chapter. You can do this. Right? Philemon is a little letter about how a master must take his slave back and how the slave has chosen to go back and is sent back between Christians. Right? It's a public discussion about Onesimus, the servant, who's become a Christian now and is now coming back into the household of Philemon, his master. And you just got to imagine this happening, right? This would have been read out loud in front of the whole church. Everybody was hearing their dirty laundry, so to speak. And apparently what happened is there's some kind of relational breakdown between Onesimus and Philemon. That's generally what, what people think. Right? And what happened is Onesimus left the house. Maybe he stole something. Maybe he just broke trust. Or maybe, yeah, we're not, it's not 100% sure. But regardless, he left. He met Paul. Jesus found him. And now all of a sudden, he's useful. Right? There's a play on words. Onesimus means useful or the help. Right? Where once before he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't useful. Now Onesimus is useful because he's going to serve Christ. And to everyone's surprise, Onesimus goes back to his master and Paul writes this letter to plead with Philemon to welcome him back without any kind of brutality because that would have been the normal sentence if there's something unjust about why he left. And so listen to the language Paul uses to command and to heal this relationship. Because Paul says, I could just tell you what to do because I'm an apostle. I could just come in there and say, don't make me come down there. I will stop, I will stop you. <laughs> right? He's going to throw his full authority and say, just knock it off. But he doesn't. This is Philemon 14 to 16. Um, Brandon, if you want to put that slide up. And I, thanks. Right? It says, I, Paul said, I prefer to do nothing without your consent. He's writing to Philemon here. In order that your goodness might, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. I don't want to force you to do it. I want you to do this. I want, I want you to do this because you want to love. And then he says, perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And if there are any debts, by the way, charge them to my account. And the letter signs off, uh, prepare a room, I'm coming. <laughs> Which I imagine is Paul saying, I'm going to check and see how it went. Right. So just listen to this. Philemon, welcome him back, not as your servant, right. not as your employee, as a beloved brother. And this is how you change a broken system. This is how you change a culture where we don't trust each other. 
is when you have the strong and the weak both being changed by Jesus in the same family. When you have those in power and those not in power turning to each other, and now you're family. And you've got to let that sink in deep, deep into your heart to say, how can I treat someone with cruelty that Christ died for? And Paul says, he, he says, you're not just any brother, Onesimus. Paul writes to Philemon and says, I want you to welcome Onesimus as you have would welcome me, the apostle. Receive me, says Paul, as you would re- receive him as you would receive me. And that language should sound very familiar. It's the same language used to describe how God loves you in Christ. Right? Jesus, perfect life, died on the cross, rises from the dead, comes to the Father, bringing us with him into the heavenly throne room and says to our Father, it's not if they have any debts, it's Father, forgive their debts. I have paid all their debts with my blood. With my blood. Therefore, welcome them, Father, as you welcomed me. Receive them. Now, for my sake, your beloved son. That's the welcome we receive. And Paul is imitating that pattern and calling us to do the same for one another, especially for masters to do that for slaves. And so this is, this is where it gets really practical, does it not? It doesn't matter who you are. Whether you are rich, whether you are poor, when, when we are together in the church, the command to build beautiful community, real community, a thick love where we forgive one another <laughs> because we will need to forgive one another, when we welcome each other back, we, we say, I want to welcome you the same way Christ welcomed me. Right. And when that gospel reality pierces your heart, you'll look for ways to receive others that way even in the midst of mistrust. So when the world's on fire, we're commanded to put on the love of Christ for one another and do the same no matter who comes in. And that that starts to create a movement, and that's exactly what happened in the early church. So I love Eric Mason's question. Pastor Camden, New Jersey, he's African-American. He came out of, of 10th Prez. And he says, what if what was happening in the world right now is calling us to believe the gospel and finally treat each other as family, as those who are in the image of Christ and being transformed into the image of Christ? And we do so as those confessing what our own partialities. So go and learn what that means. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace that has poured out abundantly on us, and we know there are wounded hearts. Uh, We we have all been victims of partiality in some way, and there are those of us who have been, who've carried this burden more. Uh, And so we ask that you do as you promised, to draw near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit as they see how Christ has loved them first. So I pray for Hope Church that you would continue to grow in us this 
Christ-centered community, that, that we would learn to love each other as family, and as family, learn to listen to each other, uh, forgiving one another as we have been forgiven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.